Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5, featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. And wait a minute, we are not doing any actual episode coverage today. Instead, we have a guest. We have science fiction author Kat Valenti. Kat, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. This is so much fun. For those in our audience who uh, might not be aware of you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I am an author of science fiction and fantasy. I've been doing this for, oh God, I guess 17 years now. That's terrible. Um, (laughs) I'm probably best known for my middle grade series, uh, The Girl Who Circumnavigated Fairyland in a Ship of Her Own Making, and my uh, adult science fiction is it weird to say something is an opus if you wrote it? Uh, <laughs> uh, space Opera, which is a sprawling science fiction comedy take on Eurovision that is occasionally deep as well. Uh, so everything in between there is the over 40 books that I have written. You can find them more or less anywhere that books are sold. And I've been nominated for or won um uh, the Hugo, the Nebula, the World Fantasy Award, the Sturgeon, the Lambda, Tip Tree, now it's the Otherwise Award. Uh, most of the awards in the science fiction field I have either been nominated for or won. So I do the space. Uh, <laughs> I try to do it well. <laughs> um, and uh, a lot of where that, I mean, uh, look, I am a, I'm a 90s girl at heart. A lot of where all that got started uh, was, was 90s science fiction. And um, I've, been, uh, I've been a professional writer since I was 24 when my first book came out. And now I'm, I'm a working writer. I've had a couple books hit bestselling lists, uh, New York Times and USA Today. Um, and uh, we just... I mean, in the pandemic, it's just like you live in the word minds and you hope that like you can come up with a good the most days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but, uh, but yeah, I do all of the, the, the robots and the dragons and the ghosts, basically. If, it's, if it can't happen in real life, I write it. And thank you so much for joining us. This all started from a Twitter yeah. thread you did. Um, and uh, we will we will <laughs> properly shout out Anna, who uh, stepped up to the plate and took a big swing. Well, uh, I'm, I'm delighted. You know, uh, my, my reputation uh, is often uh, for writing sort of, I don't know. Are we allowed to swear on this podcast? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, 
Okay. All right. Uh, I have a reputation for writing fancy shit. Uh, and so no, like the fan podcast never asked me to come on because they just assume I don't watch television or something. Like I'm one of those people. Uh, and so I'm so delighted when I actually get to go and talk <laughs> about the things that I am an unashamed fangirl about. It is like literally makes my day. I'm so happy uh, to be doing this, especially because uh, so few of my friends are willing to listen to me talk about Babylon 5. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, it was it was one of those things where it's like, well, the worst that can happen, <laughs> I'll send a polite email. The worst that could happen is either she won't respond or she you know, will say politely, nope, don't have time. Um, here I am. And here you are. This is wonderful. I mean, you've written a Mass Effect book. I, I could, we could probably ditch the entire podcast, yeah. and I'd want to talk to you about that. <laughs> I want to talk about Mass Effect and B five. I totally want to talk about yeah. that. Oh, I'm excited I, to talk about okay, that. Okay, good, good. I was thinking about this today, and I was like, oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you, you hit Justin's I trap card. <laughs> I did write a, a Mass Effect tie-in book uh, in, I guess it came out in 2018, and a Minecraft one in, in 2019. But like, definitely, I did the pew pew. Uh, the real military space stuff with the Mass Effect book. So, excellent. That's good. Is there is there anything you'd like to promote now that you've got coming out? You know, in the foreseeable future. Yeah, so I've got two books coming out this year. Um, one is called The Past is Red, and it's a climate change dystopia, but the most cheerful dystopia uh, you've ever read. Um, and that's coming out in June. I'm, I'm really, really proud of that. It's It, it started out as a short story uh, that won the Sturgeon Award. That's what I won that for. Um, and basically, the publisher and the editor couldn't stand not having more of that protagonist. So now there is this whole saga of all of these very desperate people living on the Great Pacific Garbage Patch after the uh, the sea levels have risen. So that's coming out in July. And I have a book called Comfort Me with Apples coming out in October. And I'm so excited about it. And I cannot tell anyone what it's about because that is a massive spoiler. Like the premise <laughs> is is the book. Like fi- figuring out what's where you are and what's going on is the whole thing. So it is um, a murder thriller in the suburbs, but no suburbs you've ever been to before. It is probably the first genuine pro- like horror thing I've 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 written in a long time. Uh, so that's coming out in October. I'm super excited for that as well. You can also find me on Twitter at Cat Valenti, where I babble about many things, and uh, you can find me on Patreon uh, at Cat Valenti as well, where I do a lot of uh, original work every month. Cool. And especially if you enjoy Cat talking about. <laughs> things she's watched here you do a lot of that on your patreon which is always fun to read i do well uh it, one of the stretch goals was uh like that i would i would review something that i had watched or read or played uh every month so those have become uh very popular as uh, i just tend to yell at things <laughs> i think the first place we'd want to start is you know you mentioned watching b5 when it originally came on in the 90s so yeah. if you want to share like maybe your personal history at the show or you got started with that. So it's it, it I kind of had two exposures to it. And one was when it was in syndication on what was it? TBS or TNT or one of the T channels uh, that like <laughs> just had random science fiction on at all hours. It's hard for the children these days to understand that that once upon a time you just saw things out of order and that's how it was. <laughs> 
like you couldn't do anything about it. You couldn't get a DVD yeah. set. It just was. And so I was really interested in it and I couldn't it started in like season three or something when I tuned in and I just couldn't really understand what was happening. But I was like, this is really cool. And then my real, my real heart bond to Babylon 5 was in the very early 2000s. And in my former life, I was a Navy wife. It always weirds people out when I say that, but it's true. I was living <laughs> in Japan where I knew no one. And my ex-husband was one of the first ships deployed to Iraq. 10 days after we got married. So I was a very young wife with not a soul who cared about her in a whole country. And all the other Navy wives hated me because I had a nose piercing and black hair and a job. And so it was a really tough, tough time for me. Uh, and the internet was really just starting. I just started a live journal. So it wasn't quite the 24-7 distraction that it is now. But one thing they had in the Naval Exchange was the Babylon 5 DVDs. And I was like, oh, I saw that on TBS or TNT or whatever T channel it was. Back in the day, I'm, I'm going to buy these and I'm going to watch them and uh, I will be distracted from my lot in life for a minute. And I did. And they were actually still coming out at the time. So I, I remember, I remember so clearly the season three ones coming into the store and being so excited and being like, oh, I'm going to make this last though. Uh, I'm still still going to be by myself for like a really long time. So I'm going to make this one last. And I watched the whole season in like 24 hours. I just was like, oh, just one more episode. Just just one more episode. Oh, just one more. And then as soon as I finished. Season three is really like that. Oh, it's so good. And then when that was all finished, I went back and I watched all the commentaries. And then I went back and watched the whole season series again. Uh, I'm not going to uh, try not to cry. Like my emotions are right at the surface in this whole situation with the pandemic. Uh, like they... They were my friends, those those characters. They were all the friends I had, you know. Uh, and I was just, uh, I was all alone in the night. I very much was. And uh, they were there with me. So that this show means so much to me uh, personally. And it really, it really recalls a time and a place in my life. And I love it so much. And I try to get people to watch it. And it's a, it's a tough ask. Uh, I know the newbie probably understands in boy in 2021, that is a hard ask. And the reason I was tweeting about it is that I have three brothers, but one of them and I, we grew up bonded over Star Trek. Uh, like that has always been our thing. No one else in our family is really that into Star Trek. So it's always been us. And he finally talked me into watching Enterprise, which I had avoided like the plague. And I was like, you know what? This isn't that bad. And so we watched it all through together. And I was like, okay, I watched yours. So you got to watch mine. We're going to watch Babylon 5. <laughs> and so we had been kind of going through it, especially the first season, which I feel like when I can get people over the first season, then they'll watch the rest of the show. Um, and talking about all of the controversy at the time and selling the show and Star Trek and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and just watching it, I had all those thoughts that I was tweeting about. So I was just sort of randomly t tweeting about it, uh, staying in touch with them. Um, with my space bro. <laughs> my experience with it has been that like, there's the first couple episodes where they have no idea what they're doing with the show. <laughs> but like, I think that, I think the point where you can get pretty much everybody, like if, if you can hook them onto the idea of Babylon five is the strike episode in season one. Mm. It's O'Hare's best performance in my opinion. Yeah. He's hit a stride at that point. Yeah. And I think it, 
gets down to what Babylon 5 is about, which is there's a real social issue at the, at the center of it. There's a real plot going on. But there's also this B-plot of Jakar and Londo just trying to fuck with each other. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, their relationship is just one of the, if not the best part of the show, you know, one of the top three. Yeah. Best bits of it. For me, it's signs and portents. Like, that's the one. If I can get people through to that episode, mm -hmm. the what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? Which is just so brilliant and fantastic. Like, everybody's like, oh, there's like a bigger thing going on mm -hmm. here. There's like a bigger story. I've had pretty good luck getting people to Parliament of Dreams, too. Mm. That if you can get people to Parliament of Dreams, and like that has a little bit of everything because you learn a little bit about all of the other aliens in a more like in-depth way than you have before. And you have really good Jakar content, mm -hmm. which is a joy. <laughs> this is a common theme of the show. If we, we... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're real um, big Jakar fans on this show. Oh, I'm... how can you not be? Yeah. Uh, and then, and then the the clincher is always like when you hit that last scene, and Sinclair has his showing off the dominant religious practice of Earth, mm -hmm. and you know if you're somebody who's you know watched a lot of Star Trek, you might be going into it thinking like that it's going to be something like well you know Earth doesn't have any dominant religion, and you know we we embrace logic or something along those lines, and mm -hmm. you see the long line of people. And as Sinclair then greets each person with their name and the correct greeting, and O'Hare just clinches that performance, too. Yeah. Um, I feel like that's a really strong, like, it's, it's one of the really iconic moments of the show to me. Mm. Yeah. Ironically, I'm one of the people I, as much as I absolutely adore Sinclair, and I do, I am frequently on the record on this podcast as actually liking Sinclair more than, than Sheridan. I've never had luck with with season one, with trying to get people on board with it. I think in the past, it's been really hard because it was a hard show to find and it never looked very good. Um, I'm real thrilled that it's on HBO now because the transfer looks as good as it could possibly look now that it's on HBO and it's accessible. So I'm real excited that it's out there for people to find. Um, my go-to was typically I would pick out I would just tell people, look, you owe me and <laughs> or I know something about you and just blackmail people into watching all the way through <laughs> season one. And I find that people get into season two and season two is so good about like grabbing you. There's like three or four episodes in the first five where any one of those will just hook you with something interesting. Sheridan comes on and he's such a different change of pace and just... He's such a big nerd and you're like <laughs> He's a golden retriever. Yes. Excellent. <laughs> yes. That's perfect. That's perfect. And there's so many ways in season two to to hook you and draw you in. So many questions all of a sudden that are out there to, to answer. And I find if you can get just to season two, all of a sudden you're 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 in the pipe. So I can I completely agree. Uh, I think that part of the, the trouble with season one is that it is a brand new property. So like, you know, when you try to get people to watch old Star Trek, they at least sort of have a vague knowledge of what Star Trek's all about. But you're asking them to learn a whole lot of new stuff, which wouldn't necessarily be as much of a problem if 
it's very unclear in season one how all these episodes are going to matter. They will matter, but it doesn't seem like they are going to at the time. Yeah. And so there's a lot and it's, you know, the old 25 episode seasons. So there's just a lot of space where a new viewer doesn't know where they're supposed to be standing. And season two is almost like a soft reboot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I, I mean, I got to say, like, I feel like I like Sinclair a lot more in retrospect than I did when I was watching season one. Mm-hmm. Like now, oh, I love Sinclair. He's, you know, come on, like, you, you got to love Sinclair. But I felt the same relief, like when Sheridan comes on, like, oh, okay, someone who is got a lot more energy. Ivanova's a much bigger character. There's just like a lot of subtle changes that make it more of a show that we feel like we know. Yeah. Even if we've yeah. already sat through uh, sure. the whole first yeah. season. We had a a bit, we, we have a bit where we make Justin take their headphones off when we're talking about spoilers. And we did it so much in season one <laughs> because, it, I mean, I've watched this show dozens of times, but I had not like critically watched this show before, not like watched it, watched it. And it's bananas how much work JMS does in the first season seeding stuff that p- plays out mm-hmm. in two, three, four seasons later. And now that Justin's up into like, we're just, we just finished recording. We're like three quarters of the way through season three now. Yeah. I've... Uh, they just finished watching um, War Without End. Yeah. So they know about Valen. Mm. Yeah, yeah right. we've, we've, okay. reached, we've reached the point of uh, <laughs> we've, we've reached the point where, OK, most of the major stuff is out of the way. OK, <laughs> a lot of it. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of it. But there was so much there as we were watching that first season. It, so much of that, the five season arc is seeded right from go. Yep. That your point that like, yeah, like when you watch it in retrospect, you catch all that. But for a new viewer watching it, you're just like, oh, man, like how many times are we going to like see Sinclair looking confused or yeah. why do we care about this particular thing? Like, and you don't catch that till like, you know, season three, which is awesome. The second time you watch the show, but the first time <laughs> is just like, yeah, Mooresville. Um, why do I care about this weird triangle thing? Like <laughs> <laughs> as a writer, it's like, it's, this is really like the first time that such serialized, such a serialized format had been tried in like mainstream sci-fi television. And there's also like the stuff like the B plot in death Walker, where it's like Talia sits on a weird negotiation where people start talking becomes (laughs) a throwaway ending thing for Hmm. Talia's write off in season two. And it's just like, there's parts of it where JMS is just getting too cute. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> yeah. but it's like it's at the same time it's been interesting to watch it because it's like okay this is 1995 you know I've spent the last television is trended towards a more serialized format for the last 20 years I like since Buffy and Alias really but it's like and seeing that bef- in like it's proto state is so fun yeah I- I'm gonna be the TV nerd here for a minute and say that the uh, the the sea change came with Twin Peaks mm-hmm In 91. And that was really the first time a show looked like a movie every week. You know, like if you watch the remastered Twin Peaks, it's unreal how good it looks. Like it just is slick. It looks it looks 
absolutely film quality and it was a serialized drama. But the only way that David Lynch could even get his head around that was to think of it in terms of a soap opera, which is entirely what it's modeled on. But that was the big change. And then the X-Files came along um, and Babylon 5 really arrives kind of in the midst of television experimenting with how much can we get away with a story that uh, you may have missed part of. And again, as I said in the beginning, you will not be re-seeing that until TBS or TNT or whatever uh, decides to show it to you. And how, you know, how much do we have to do Monster of the Week episodes? And it was very much trying to figure that out. And Babylon 5 is a huge part of that. Yeah. It's funny. I hadn't thought about that, but it, we take for granted the idea that you you miss an episode and you can watch it. You can just go back and watch it or you can read a recap on TV line or something. But dang, yeah, in 1996, you miss an episode unless you you're one it. of those guys. Yeah, if you if you taped it, maybe. But if you just missed an episode, unless you were one of the rare few that were out there on Usenet, like yucking it up with JMS, you were pretty screwed. <laughs> yep. Like you really yeah. missed the train. You had to like depend on that eight second last time on Babylon 5 snippet at the top Which of the episode. Which it doesn't episode. really do even. No. Well, and and the other thing to think about is that it's not like, unless you were again on Usenet, like it's not like there were a bunch of forums where you could get leaks of what the next episode was going to be about either. Like you either saw the blurb in TV Guide or you didn't. And if you were young, you definitely didn't because you didn't care about TV Guide. Uh, <laughs> and you had no idea whether the next week was going to be a big episode or not, unless it was sweeps, premiere, or finale. Everything else could have been big or small, and you had no idea. Yeah. yeah you could be going in for, in for a, a TKO or a world without end, yep. and you never knew which one you were going to get. Whole different era. Yeah. Damn, that's wild. When I was a child, <laughs> we, we had to watch TV uphill both ways. Well, and, um, <laughs> and actually, we, when I was growing up, I also watched it. I'll put air quotes on this live, <laughs> but there was a further degree of separation because we did not have cable or access to any. So I grew up in the middle of nowhere in the mountains in upstate New York. And so it was basically like if you held a wrench to the TV antenna in the <laughs> right spot, you could get CTV. <laughs> <laughs> and if you held the wrench in the other spot, you'd get PBS. And that was it, you know, plus minus weather conditions. <laughs> and so we had a friend who had cable who would tape the B5 episodes and the Star Trek episodes and like hand off the tapes to us to watch. And so it was like we were dependent on another human to remember to record this. Yeah, that's mm. sneaker net. That's real old school. <laughs> Remembrances of geeks past. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I had to learn how to program a VCR when I was eight. <laughs> like we had, I had soccer practice on Saturday mornings. I could not watch cartoons. <laughs> so what are your, we'll say like just in general, your favorite parts of watching Babylon 5 or like what, what's particularly compelling to you? About I mean, I, I, I love the Valen twist. I do. Lo I love Zathras. Um, I, I, you know, <laughs> Delenn is just such an amazing character. She really is. And and Mira Furlan, rest in peace, she really brought so much to every word that came out of her mouth. So much, you know, 
depth and dignity and I mean she she made the Mimbari Mm -hmm. and just that that whole performance and she is such the lens through which we see an entire species obviously we see many more Mimbari than her but but never as intimately as her and it's never cheesy when she says anything and it might be in another actor's mouth it never is she is always just so present and so real and so grounded and it's it's kind of the opposite of what the delight in Londo and Jakar's acting is, which is just so over the top and Shakespearean and amazing and and energetic to watch and where Delenn is so grounded. And I loved those performances. I love watching those performances. Like I, the aliens are the ones that I just yeah. Yeah. go nuts for. Uh, and if anyone's read my Mass Effect book, you know that it, the aliens in Mass Effect are also who I go <laughs> nuts for. Uh, I tend to not give nearly as much of a crap about the humans in any given science fiction as I do about the aliens. <laughs> God, I love, I mean, I mentioned the what do you want, what do you want? I just, I, I remember that really being the first time I was like, oh, that's a brilliant way to structure an episode. And my writer brain was like, we will be back here shortly. Like everything <laughs> happening here is clearly going to be very important. Yeah. But the, the Vorlons and the shadows and all of that stuff, it was just so rich and it felt so real. It felt so, so completely thought out in a way that Star Trek so often felt like, like what it was, which was that the writer's room came up with a new story every week. And that's brilliant and great. But there was just so much more going on here. And as the show progresses and the relationships get deeper, and by the way, I, I, go back for a second. I fucking love Ivanova. Uh, and there were so few like her in 90s television. I feel like you can't oh, yeah. see it now. You can't understand what it was like to see her on television in the 90s when, you know, Buffy was barely a thing. But even Buffy had to be like, oh, my God, in order to yeah, cover up that she was actually this powerful thing because people couldn't take both of those at the same time. You couldn't be gorgeous, grumpy, brilliant, violent, uh, and, you know dignified all at the same time and funny as hell. Like you couldn't do that. Yeah. There's nobody else. I can't think of anybody else who was like Ivanova uh, on television. She was all of those things and it was amazing. And it would be years before anybody else, uh, any other character was allowed to be like her. But the whole sort of overarching story, which of course is, was just exciting on its own at the time. Um, it, it really got you going. It really got you into it. You couldn't stop, even if there's characters you don't like. There's so many other ones to pull you in. It was just such a huge variety. And at the time, you hadn't just never seen anything like that on television. Star Trek was what there was. And then you could see a science fiction movie or you could read a billion science fiction books. But like, there was nothing, there was nothing like it. And I was talking last night on Twitter about how freaking amazing the episode titles are. Oh, yeah. Just the episode titles are mm-hmm. better than almost all episode titles of any other show. I'm not going to say definitely because then someone will point out some brilliant episode title I'm not thinking <laughs> of. But uh, like they're really freaking good. And uh, all of that, just that attention to detail and that ability to I think that that's what really got me as someone who didn't know in 1995, I was, I was from high school. And so I guess it would have been 97 that I saw it in syndication. So I started to see it in syndication. Someone who didn't know she was going to be a writer yet. It seemed like a magic trick to be able to put an entire universe worth of culture and story and history and, and time travel and 
crazy ancient aliens and internecine squabbles and all of these incredible things to just spin it out of nothing and put it on TV as with the with the absolute surety and confidence as though it was Star Trek and you could just be sure everyone was going to like it and it definitely wasn't a sure thing at the time but it just did it it was yeah. just there all of it all at once and even from that first season which is difficult as we've talked about but you can still sense all of the possibilities and all of the details in it and that blew me away yeah one thing that show even right from season one one thing it never struggled with was the verisimilitude like that that sense of this is a lived-in world it looks dirty it looks real there is culture and clash and uh depth just below the surface to everything you see uh, is so hard to nail. And when you do, it's it's just the richest meat on the bone. And right from season one, uh, I think that's probably what made the show work when everything else about season one at various times didn't work. That kept, the, I think, kept the show running in a lot of ways. Because even when the writing maybe wasn't great or the sets looked like they were paper mache and, and <laughs> plywood in, at times. You always With wanted to- With sponge paint. Yeah. With sponge paint. Sponge paint, yeah. You always wanted to tune in the next episode to see what else there was of this world to see. Even if it was rough, you were always interested in what, what more of the world there was to be uncovered. And that's that's a difficult trick to land. Not a lot of shows today stick that landing. A lot of shows do world building and a lot of shows do make up a language and have gorgeous sets. But that depth is the hardest thing, I think, for any creative endeavor to to, to nail. And JMS really uh, knocked it out of the park there. And I think the everything plays a part in that, though. It's JMS certainly is the writer and creator has a lot to do with it. But I think he got so, so lucky with the actors that he cast, or he had an absolutely tremendous casting director. I don't know which one it was, but... Uh, I mean, both. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, based on... We yeah. see the guest stars the show is pulled. Yeah, yeah. The casting director must have been just phenomenal because the guest stars are great too. And just the collective gravitas in that core cast, uh, the three ambassadors, uh, Ivanova, I mean, you could have... The two aides as well. I mean, Yeah. It's an unbelievably great core cast. And they really anchor these wild roles in huge ways. And that lends to that depth. You really feel that these are real characters with real cultures. And um, I think you point out really correctly, uh, and, and in something that's really important, I think, about those characters is the way that each of them is unique in the way that they portray that. Uh, Delenn is is has that very wa- kind of that wise Minbari are sometimes called space elves, and I think that's hmm. not entirely <laughs> inaccurate uh, in that 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 sort of like depth and wisdom there. And then you have Jakar's bombast and panther prowling everywhere he goes, and Londo's sort of it's a great Centauri Republic. Yeah, <laughs> that's quite good. <laughs> yeah. It's camp. Come on. Londo is camp. Yeah. Londo's yeah, camp, it's and camp. it's fantastic. Yeah. It, and they all bring so much to each of those for styles that it's just, I, don't know, I could rave all day about how good that core cast is, particularly Jakar. 
Uh, but that's my job <laughs> on this podcast. Something that always like re- that like looking back on the show, you know, I've we're I've nearly finished three seasons is um, that everything approaches itself with an earnestness. Mm. Um, like pre irony. In, in a lot of modern shows, there's that tendency to wink at the camera. and But it's like, there's a bunch of lines in the show that just don't get, like, they get sold because everything there is, like, it's been built on, it's earnest, it's not trying to get anywhere too fast. The There's two in particular that come to mind, which are, in season two, they have a, on this podcast, we'll say controversial episode, uh, where a news crew goes Whoa. to the station. <laughs> But there's a scene there where Jakar speaking about the Narn occupation yeah. evokes the the phrase never again. Without a season and a half of like build up and an explanation of what's going on and the Narn Centauri War, I was like, no, this is actually the show has earned the ability to use that and not have it sound like it is reaching and pulling something that it may, maybe shouldn't. I think it's it's an apt comparison. Yeah. The other one is season three with Delenn in Severed Dreams when she gives her speech to the Earth fleet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's just like, you could, you could, there's so many ways this line could have gone wrong. But no, instead, it's the perfect moment for the halfway point of the show. Yeah. That whole episode, Delenn's, when she just burns down the Grey Council, I think it's a real testament to Mira Furlan's ability that. She has scenes where she says nothing, like in Late Delivery from Avalon. She has scenes where nobody is talking to her, where she's speechifying to the Great Council and nobody dares talk back to her. And then she has these great dialogues and it doesn't matter. She can nail any of those. And particularly that episode where she breaks up the Great Council and then turns up above B5 with her ships and tells Earth to fuck off. And that moment is so good. Just such a powerful moment. And you're right. That scene and those lines are so earned, completely earned. It's it's terrific. It could not have been. It, it's, a, it's a line that could have flopped and died on the page or on the screen so easily. And it doesn't. entirely because of how well they've set up that moment and how good Mira Furlan is. And I want to ping off of something that you said real quick, Kat, which is about the episode titles, which I agree are absolutely fantastic. And I think that, you know, I wonder if that was one of the things that really helped the show keep going, because like you said, you know, it's, you know, you're, you're seeing it on the TV guide, et cetera. And when you see an episode titled falling toward apotheosis, right, you, you, you're like, yeah. I got to see what that's about, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's always very evocative. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, so I've had a glass of wine, so I'm going to offer something very vulnerable here. As we're talking about what we love about Babylon 5, I wrote a poem about Babylon 5. It's quite short, but I could read you my poem that kind of sums it up. Yes, That'd please. be wonderful. If you want. Yes, please. We would be honored. <laughs> So this was part of a series of poems I did that were all tweets. So like the rule is they all had to be 280 characters, all of that. So that's when I say short, it's short, but, and they don't have titles. The thing about Babylon 5 is it is all of us. Ah, We are garbage, really. Weird characters, 
cliché dialogue, cheap sets, overacting, rehashing stories people with more money have told already. But somehow, we are more than our budget should allow us to be. You and me, together, striving, all alone in the night. That was wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. That's yeah, that <laughs> that's terrific. Great. I like that. And so we yeah, should probably we should potentially probably get to the things that we like <laughs> originally planned to talk about. <laughs> it's entirely appropriate that yeah, we, I mean, we take half the episode to just rave about the show and and then finally get to the topic. That's on yeah. that's on brand. The original inspiration for this was, Kat, you you posted a Twitter thread talking about you were rewatching B5 and, you know, talking about the the plausibility of B5, but also sci-fi in general in terms of technological evolution. And all of us really like pinged off of that and found it really interesting, which is like, well, we, we could actually, you know, have her on. <laughs> So I don't know if you want to briefly summarize that. Yeah. So watching this, and I think it, it really hit me with the opening monologue, you know, because it gives you a year and that really pins stuff mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. down, you know. And I was like, huh, you know, I don't think I, I ever thought about it in this sense. I think there was just a different feeling. It never kind of occurred to me that, that maybe by 2258, we're not gonna be there we're not gonna be with a big space station and aliens and all the rest of it that we we may not make it i mean period but i even assuming that we make it as a species i feel like there's been a real shift in science fiction and we understand so much more about how difficult some of these problems the problems that are left are you know, there's this thing called the Nobel effect, which is that uh, it used to be a lot easier to win a Nobel Prize because there was a lot of low-hanging fruit problems to be solved. And the ones that are left are so much harder now. Uh, and so the, the age of winning a Nobel Prize has really gone up uh, over the course of the prize. Yeah, so it's, it's actually... And a, as somebody who is academia, at least sort of in academia, oh boy, I feel that. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, the problems that are left as far as as space flight and uh, and travel, a real interstellar travel, are are incredibly difficult. And progress is not a linear and predictable process. You know, it may not always just go up and up and up. Uh, when you look at one of the things I talked about in the thread was that when you you know look at the difference between life in 1558 and 1758. Yes, some things are different, but that is a life that that someone in 1758 would recognize. Uh, you know, it's just different clothes, but it's still kind of a medieval world uh, in the 1700s. Yes, the new world has become much more of a thing, but uh, it's still a colony, and it's like there there is still a lot of commonality. And you know, somebody who is alive in 1758 and someone who's alive in 1958 cannot even have a conversation. And that's 1958. Uh, yeah. And so there's, there, there are eras where we progress incredibly quickly and there are eras where we don't. And it may well be that we are in one of the eras where we make 
great strides, but those great strides don't necessarily get reflected in the everyday life of regular non-rich people. Uh, and so, you know, perhaps in 2258, we could just have a conversation with that person and it would not be this as drastic a change uh, as we're thinking. And it really, it really is just so much harder than we think. Even, even the, the problem of food, uh, the problem of gravity, just these simple problems that come with just putting a space station, even in our own solar system, um, it's, it's incredibly hard. There was a whole movement called Mundane SF uh, in the sort of late 2000s, early 2010s. It's kind of Charlie Strauss and, and Kim Stanley Robinson. And, you know, they confined themselves to only technology that, that fits in with how we conceive of science now, technology that can be, uh, you know, predicted from where we are right now. So and, and no faster than light travel is a big thing. Is that something I was ever interested in writing? Absolutely not. I don't care at all. Uh, do I absolutely respect them as artists and think those books were great? Yes, of course. I don't. I read things I don't have any interest in writing whatsoever. That's like that's the circle of art. Uh, but you know, in Babylon Five, it's the jump gate technology, and Star Trek, it's warp technology. Uh, there's always something that allows you to cheat the speed of light, uh, and mm-hmm. unless we find that cheat. I'm just not nearly as certain we're getting there as I used to be. And that if we do get there, that that space station is going to be anywhere people want to live. I wrote an essay quite some time ago called Shit Cisco Says. Um, <laughs> it, it was about the failure of DS9 to be able to predict the internet, uh, but sp- not sp- just the internet, specifically social media, because, you know, DS9 Twitter is insane. Like the actual Twitter that goes on on the space station <laughs> and hashtag shit Cisco says. Uh, and like the, the way the internet culture has changed the way we talk to each other, has changed the way we occupy our free time, has changed the way everything interacts with everything else. You know, we could predict jump gates and warp drives before we could predict that. You know, no mm-hmm. one in these shows is walking around with a phone. Jake still wants to be some kind of paper journalist instead of, you know, the the blogger or influencer uh, <laughs> that he would, he would, he actually was. He just didn't have a word for it. Yeah. Um, you know, and and uh, I find that fascinating. The thing that is, that becomes so mundane so quickly that 25 years ago, you don't include it in far future science fiction. Yeah, one of the the jokes we've had on our B5 coverage is just how, like, the, the technology in the show is not just, like, very coming from a 1990s origin, but it looks very 1990s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Babcom units look like an ATM machine with a, t- with a primitive touchscreen. Um, no, the, the link, the link. I mean, I guess it's kind of Apple Watchy. Um, like. And then there's like the computer screens and stuff that all look like they're, you know, CRT. Yeah, um, and get and, and so get Jude talking about data crystals too. Oh Jesus! Hmm. The the most the least useful USB drive. Yeah, <laughs> you can't even label them. No, they're we don't have time. <laughs> well, but I mean, that's a really interesting way to think about what we're talking yeah. about, though, because like, OK, so there's a joke in um, Men in Black in the first Men in Black movie where he's talking about uh, where Tommy, Tommy, Lee, Tommy Jones. Lee Jones, Tommy Lee Jones. So he's talking about how uh, he had to rebuy the White Album on CD 
from vinyl. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then he holds up a mini disc or some reasonable facsimile thereof and says, like, we're going to have to do it all again with this. And no one could guess that what we would do it all again with was nothing. Yeah. Was no physical media. Yeah. Like that there was another choice there. Not crystals, not super tiny CDs. Fuck all. Yeah. <laughs> Just, Just like data. absolutely yeah. nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's, it, that's an interesting way to think about it, really. Yeah. The way that the people on B5 interact with their computers is also like really predates the internet. Voice commands like that, they're, I mean, could you just imagine porn searches on B5? (laughs) (laughs) You've got to just tell it. There's a lot. I love, it's the thing I actually really like about the show is it gives it a cohesive visual sense that it lacks because it's not trying to do the Star Trek thing where it's Mm -hmm. like, there's a single like visual dictionary that is reinterpreted by each race. So like every race has a pad, like the Cardassians is orange and the Bajorans has <laughs> little squiggly bits on the corner. Like everybody's kind of doing their own weird thing. And I like that about it, but it's all nineties. Like it's all yeah. fucking weird, but it's all nineties <laughs> fucking weird. Comma. But then you have Franklin roll up in his goddamn, like, tracksuit with its, like, <laughs> giant, bold graphic panels eating a Nutri-Grain bar. And you're just like, get the fuck out of here. Like, there are times when it works. And then there are times when it doesn't work. And then he waves his science wand and it tells him, fuck all. Yeah. There, I, I love the aesthetic in a lot of ways. And then every now and then you're just like... Wow. Okay. Not so much that one. Um, well, we can we can all rest assured that Zima is coming back, though. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The free Z- the free Zima placement. Um, one of my favorite bits from Lurkers is that they're like, no, they didn't pay us. We just thought we just thought we'd throw some Zima in there. And I think I think B five is really interesting to think about in terms of kind of comparing it and its tech levels to other sci fi that's set in the same time because we we do have a year for it Mm -hmm. you know we've got it 2258 which is the same time as star trek disco season two Mm -hmm. like it's the same year or the expanse is 2350 which is even you know a little bit further ahead it's interesting to compare the levels of tech because you know b5 is a lot closer to the expanse than it is to star trek in a lot of ways that humans are you know they've got jump gate technology and they can build big allen cylinders and that's about it well Um, and i think that like (laughs) look uh not to sort of ruin my chance of ever getting hired to write for a star trek disco but um (laughs) that's gonna look as dated as babylon 5 does yeah it's it's going to it is so very very 2010s yeah uh we can't it's harder to see trends when you're in the middle of them but it's gonna look oh absolutely the same as as b5 does to us now and and there is something though occasionally it does look like a mall uh like there is something that is maybe a little more honest about how shitty some of the things are. Cause boy, if, if we, if we make a space station like that in 2255, it's going to look a lot more like B5 than it's going to look like DS9. It's going to be cheap contractors, 
uh, <laughs> modular design. Uh, and then someone's going to try and put some kind of squiggle on it because uh, we still need art in space and they need to justify their graphic design degree. Like that's absolutely what it's going to look yeah. like. Yeah. And then someone's going to put in a, someone's going to put in a hedge page for some reason. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> For oxygen exchange, Justin. <laughs> we previously compared the station to a airport. It's a big airport. Yeah. Basically. With yeah. Plus mall, plus trade hub. But like, you know, it's people are going in and out. The fact that it has, you know, the, the lurkers and down below and stuff like that, I think is a lot more honest about yeah. humans and where humans will be in 2258. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things that's really nice about Babylon 5, especially on a rewatch. It is so much more concerned with class than uh, Star Trek ever was. And so much it, it you're going down to the, you know, guts of the station immediately. We don't need to wait for a very special episode in season five to mm. glimpse what someone who's not on the command staff is up to. Like that is a huge part of the show. It's right away a part of the show. Yeah. And uh, I think that it's part of what gives it that that sense of realness and cohesiveness and groundedness we were talking about is that uh it's not just about this tiny core cast of people who are in charge of things like there's so much else going on and all of the plots that have to do with the psychics and and everything um you know that i think that's a big departure from the star trek tradition and the tradition of a lot of the science fiction that was on television at the time where humans were humans and if somebody had psychic powers they were not that yeah uh and it's it's very very interesting and that concern with earth that concern with you know inequality and all of the things that would still be happening we are definitely not getting to like post-scarcity happy fun times uh in in 200 years not no uh it's gonna be a lot more like b5 than than the rest Mm. but uh that concern makes it feel real to us because we live in 2021 and we know what's up yeah yeah or down (laughs) one thing that like that i've observed while watching the show is that the earth-based politics of the show pretty much just are 1990s america (laughs) Um, like there like there 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 isn't a lot that's like to show that we've made any like i think that's a deliberate choice like that earth hasn't really done anything in 250 years to change and that's why it is precariously close to falling to a fascist government as like see episode one happens. Yeah. And I think it's just like, and I think that's like an intentional choice, but it's like, you know, there hasn't been any problems solved on earth. And in fact, it's the only thing that earth has done is banded up together. So it can be shitty to other people on other planets. Yeah. <laughs> Which is very much the expanses take, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And and honest. I don't know what you think is going to happen if Elon Musk gets to decide what Mars is all about, but uh, yikes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I think it's interesting that the tech level of, of Earth is, we talk about the Allen cylinders and the jump gates, but the jump gates aren't even a human invention. They're, yeah. we ca- cadged those off the Centauri and- didn't even bother to check that the Centauri like were not humans. Like we sort of, apparently we didn't even bother to check what was in their pants until for like 50 (laughs) years, which 
Seems neglectful. Wrong, wrong. Uh, <laughs> the author of Space Opera that uh, has a whole section about the first thing anybody is going to want to do is fuck an alien. Yeah. Especially once we find out what the Centauri are passing. Well, and, uh, yes, well, and that's my podcast problem. podcast about alien genitalia. Yeah, I got us there. <laughs> See? Uh, <laughs> especially considering what we know about Londo. And the other Centauri, <laughs> there's no way that they waited that long to try and no, human. No, no chance. So <laughs> I'm just saying, I don't see, believe that's that This brings line. us, Justin, to Mass Effect. Uh, yes. <laughs> and how, holy crap, they ripped off Babylon 5. <gasps> I didn't even think of I've worked for Mass Effect. I, like, I wrote that tie-in novel. I never thought about it. I'm a massive fan of Mass Effect. And I never thought about it until, like... I queued it up for this rewatch, and of course your brain fast forwards and starts running through everything that's going to happen, and I was like, oh, wow, it's a lot. It's a lot they got from this. <laughs> Last week's recording, we had another guest on, and we talked about this exact thing, but very <laughs> abbreviated. But yeah, no, it's um, Mass Effect, they really just decided to pick and choose what they wanted for a B5 and say, uh, let's let's make some cooler, like, let's let's slap some, like, semi-plausible technobabble on it, give everything a cooler aesthetic, and make them in Bari hot blue women? Yeah, basically. That's <laughs> yep. basically it. It's it's nuts. I the, mean, the shadows yeah, are no. just the Reapers. Yep, the shadows are the Reapers. Uh out out on the rim, which is where the Reapers live. Uh the Narn are the um Krogan. Like uh it's all it's all there. Yep. Even down to like, you know, the sort of go-betweens and it's and it's the citadel and babylon 5 is the citadel uh it's mass effect is hornier but like it is uncanny <laughs> how similar the story is and the chaos and order and uh it's just that um babylon 5 doesn't really get into synthetic life too much but other than that yeah, that's actually one of my like minor quibbles with ba with babylon 5 is in season three they start like they do a couple, like, I guess because they had the CGI budget, shots of, like, maintenance drones around the station. Mm -hmm. And every time you see one, it dies. <laughs> and as somebody who, like, loves robots and stuff, this was very heartbreaking to me. Um, and because I was just like, you're going to give me, like, these little robot buddies and they just die and I don't know anything about them. Pour, pour one out for maintenance number, number five. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Which um, I mean, that's something that it's like. I guess it's just not something that they wanted to really go into, or like it wasn't something that maybe JMS was interested in, or maybe they just didn't have the budget. Um, yeah, who knows? But you know, it's uh, again the circle of folklore. Star Trek, Disco, and Picard have been ripping off Mass Effect left, right, and center. So, <laughs> oh my gosh, do not talk to me about Picard. I, I, I'm not. <laughs> literally, Picard season one literally is Mass Effect since. I'm just going to say this because um, I know I'm among friends and you will understand what I'm saying. Um, I'm sorry. Since when in Star Trek do we use the word synths? We don't use that word. We don't use organics and synths. That's a Mass Effect word. That's our word. They don't get to use that word. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. We have never said synths. We say androids. That's yeah. how that works. No, uh, Picard completely ripped off Mass Effect uh, to an unsettling degree. But apparently Mass Effect ripped off Babylon 5 to an unsettling degree. So I'm at peace with it. <laughs>
maybe we can look at this as an avenue for you know, inducting more people into the Babylon 5 fandom, is that we take mm. Mass Effect fans, and then we say that there's this TV show that's foundational for Mass Effect. Ah, yeah. it's a good it's idea. Mass Effect, it's but model idea. UN. It's in, it's in <laughs> conversation, as we say. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was very on the fence about the Mass Effect re- remaster. I've never played any of the Mass Effect. I like somehow missed that. And uh, then the the remaster came out and Justin uh, basically like melted down on Twitter about it. And I was like, making noise. And then Justin uh, explained at length about the fact that A, it's Babylon 5 and B, it's much hornier. Um, and I was like, <laughs> yeah. all right, well, I'm sold. Uh, so maybe that's the right way to do it. L- listen, listen, I, I, there is a standing offer here. If we, if like when this game comes out, I will run a tabletop session of, of Mass Effect <laughs> and we will, do, and we will do this just to induct you. And <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's literally my favorite video game of all time. I mean, obviously like, you're talking to someone who chased down a media tie-in contract when my agent was like, why would, don't do that. Why would you do that? They're not even going to pay you anything. Why are you doing that? I'm like, because love. <laughs> uh, like that's how much I love. I you're love this game. You're my hero. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I, I think it's a hundred percent all the way uh, worth a playthrough for sure. Yeah. That's definitely uh on my list to, to, to consume. I cried three whole times during one of the Mass Effect games. <laughs> cried human tears <laughs> at a video game. I'm not prepared for like the playthroughs there. I'm oh my God, be- I cannot wait. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to like how it will look in the next gen graphics. It's going to be, yeah, it's going to be it'll, so it'll be nice. And you know, f- for that very reason, like I go back and forth on whether I want to see Babylon 5 rebooted you know, like, yeah, because, yeah, you know, some of the rough edges would be filed off. It would look a lot better. It would bring all kinds of people in to the fandom. And, you know, you'd get actors whose whole careers would be restarted playing these iconic roles and everything. But in some ways, the rough edges are Babylon 5. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I- I'm not sure that I I want to see it get slicked up. We, we had a conversation about this actually earlier today in our, our group chat over like, okay, if you had to do it again, like it would probably end up being a prestige drama on like HBO or yeah. Showtime or something, just because that's the only place it happens. Like that's the only place where you're allowed to like tell these long stories like that. And like we went through stuff and it was generally it was really minor stuff that like if we had to do it, that we would change. Yeah. Yeah. I would I would like the aliens to be more alien and that's about it and that's really one of the hardest things to do because like a whole bunch of budget comes into that and then a person has to move or be completely animated yeah i'm not really talking about like looking alien i'm talking like i would have liked to have the aliens give a you know more of a range for exploration of like different senses of family and culture Mm, and You know, the way that, say, the Becky Chambers Wayfarer series does, mm-hmm. where it's, it's you know, different different senses of what, what does it mean to be a family? How do you raise children, et cetera? And, you know, a lot of B5 is very, like, the family structures are very human and the culture, mm. like, the cultures are fairly 
human-esque. Um, and having some variation there would have been really interesting. Yeah. I also, I'm also a huge like orbital mechanics and such nerd. And so I would love to see more, you know, actually playing <laughs> with the fact that they're in Allen cylinder and things. So uh, things have got to be real weird. Yeah. I just would have fixed Talia, Talia's storyline. That is oh, yeah. uh, one of my, my big pet peeves uh, with the show. Uh, is Talia is a victim of like half of the mysterious stranger uh, comes through mm. customs and it turns out to be her insert deeply problematic uh, relationship with a <laughs> mentor or older man. And then it's uh, then she's written off in a really problematic way. And like, I just don't like, I, I love her character. She doesn't get enough to do. And then she gets this really ugly, unceremonious exit. And uh, it's the one thing I am like just deeply unsatisfied with in the show uh, as far as like a character arc. I would have just fixed that. It's the one thing. I mean, we could lose Byron in uh, season five. Well, uh, we can talk about that. Justin hasn't gotten to season five yet. <laughs> we can, but, I, well, but I feel but like yes. that's not actually a spoiler that he's going to be upset about. Uh, yes. J- you know, my cat happens to be named Byron, and you can just pretend I'm talking about my cat. Yeah, uh, but I agree with you. He's a, he's a real douche uh, with beautiful hair. Yes. So, <laughs> we have only stand one man with beautiful hair on the show. <laughs> and it's um, Marcus. <laughs> It's about baby. Oh, of course, of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, so so much of the the things that even just the two that you and I are talking about are actually due to things totally outside the narrative's control with mm-hmm. the actors yeah. and the you know stu- mm-hmm. studios and yeah. chan- uh, station uh, demands and and whether or not it was going to be canceled or not. Like a, a lot of that isn't even necessarily the fault of the show in any mm-hmm. way it just it, yeah. it, you know doing the best with a, a bad situation yeah so yeah like i said i'm i'm not dropping a dime necessarily Which has not stopped happening in 2021 oh, yeah. at no. all so yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i'm not dumping on jms for that necessarily although i do have beef with some of the storylines they gave talia early on um but yeah I, I i mean that's why he designed the story the way he did to have exits for any of the characters and i get that like i that's that's cool i understand that i uh, i just think it's the one storyline i find unsatisfying uh and that i would like to do something different with i think otherwise like all the other storylines whether they were aborted because they didn't they you know the actor had to leave or whether they were screwy or different or cut short or whatever happened with the studio interference I think they they stick that landing. I think hers is the one where I just don't think the landing sticks. But, you know, we got a little bit of lesbian representation. Yeah. Yeah, we had yeah. a we had a whole episode about uh, that. About was that was rough to get by anybody in the 90s. Again, yeah. things that cannot be expressed now, like how hard yeah. that was to get on television in the 90s. As, as, as a queer person, it is uh, it, it, it was a really fun episode to watch. Like as I was doing it, and and then there's some like critic brain comes on. It's like ooh, um, but but it's it's also a very good pick me up considering that that is the episode that like in the in the order I was watching it in comes after Confessions and Lamentations, <laughs> which um, let me tell you, seeing that episode in October 2020 um, was a real uh, like not knowing what that was coming and then like slowly realizing it. Then oh oh yeah. 
Ooh. Man, there's a lot of season two that season two in general is a rough ride for 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 2020. Uh, yeah, plague and fascism uh, <laughs> don't land as entertainment quite the same way uh, after the last year. We were just talking when we we just recorded the B five breaking away from Earth and martial law, etc. Yeah. And boy, that hits so different in the wake of January sixth. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I want to go back to something Justin said just for a second, though, because I'm a queer person as well. And like, boy, in the 90s, you know, you lived for a girl touching another girl's hand like that. That'll do you for years. Uh, (laughs) Like there was so little. uh, It was it was Xena and nothing. Um, <laughs> like oh yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's a generational thing. Like, yeah, for, for, for sure. Because like, I'm, you know, I, I like, I my first, God, I didn't even watch Star Trek till I was like 2003. So like, you know, it's just different thing. But it was like, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's huge. And I am mad at Wikipedia that uh, Susan Ivanova is not listed on like their list of characters yeah well people forget and the thing is it was much braver in the end than ds9 that had to couch the whole thing in trill and uh like provide all of these ways that you could see it as somehow straight with two women kissing on screen and uh, b5 didn't bother with any of that and did not ever get the credit uh that they should have for it but, you know, for for me, I was, I, you know, I, again, if, if like the barest brush of one girl's finger on another girl's <laughs> finger, uh, like will 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 set you throwing confetti in the air. Like it was amazing to see. I really respect that it was very intentional as well. JMS, I love Lurker's Guide. I think it's an incredible resource for a show like this because it archives all of these convers- these Usenet conversations that JMS was having at the time. And all the way back in at the time when the show, when the show was airing, JMS is out there on Usenet punching up with with nerds, uh, saying this is exactly what I'm trying to do. I'm constrained by what the network will let me do, but this is yes, this is this is what I'm trying to do. And if I could do more on TV, I would. Mm-hmm. And that's as you're talking, you're talking about Xena, who and they were they were going as far as they could possibly go on Xena. And JMS is out there like doing absolutely everything the network will will let him do, and being yeah. very upfront about it. Um, and I I respect. Yeah, that. I think like yeah, like in the Lurker's Guide, he talks about like that the reason that they don't like kiss or anything is because they want they wanted to avoid that specific like that being the hurdle instead mm-hmm. of portraying the relationship. Yeah, mm-hmm. which which I think is like it's it's a really it was a really smart, like it was a really smart move, I guess, from like a maneuvering standpoint. And like, it sells the relationship completely because there is buildup in like the episodes going to it. Mm-hmm. And like, I think it's really good. Like, Absolutely. And anything I have is just dialectics at that point. Yeah. It's like, I think it's like, it, it's huge for 1996. I mean, that's the the, the two things that, yeah, if I, like if they remade beat five, the only thing, the two things that I ask is like, you know, keep most of the time, most of the same. Just make it less Anglo-Saxony white and make it more gay. Way gayer. Yeah. Just yeah. Just way gayer. I can't, yeah, can we on. just make I, I, Jakar Franklin, make out with everyone? Frank, Franklin could be my man. Like Franklin could totally have a boyfriend. Absolutely. That would make that would improve his character a hundred percent. I mean, Franklin and Garibaldi could hook up. I'm not okay. mad at that. See, I, I'm not I, the I, only I, one I that picked that. up on that. That wasn't just me. 
Oh, they have that bottle of lube. That I had a whole out. thing in the episode Bag where they're going out. Yeah, <laughs> they're doing their th- thing, and they go out on their little like detective hunt. Garibaldi's got his dumb little hat, and Franklin's in Franklin's in his sex party suit with his goddamn like oh, nylon jumpsuit. I swear the, to God, uh, the little the subliminal message of like you up, yeah. I swear to God. We had our worst crack ship um, for for like uh, when we hit season three with uh, Jakar's Narn bodyguard. Yeah, who Sheridan saves for the alien abduction ship. We like I ship Talon and Sheridan. Like they have a moment where like when they see each other, they like glance and they share a knowing glance, and then they meet at the bar. And Sheridan's already got a drink for him, and I'm just like. I'm like (laughs) look I'm on board I think everybody everybody should be into the Narns Um, I also just think any space station like that and I realize we're getting a little off into the uh, out out to the rim so to speak but like I feel like everyone is banging on a space station like that like there is no internet. Uh, there is not a lot to do. Uh, there's no like holodecks or anything like that. Everyone works really hard. And then uh, there's like all kinds of black market stuff going on. It is a uh, 24-7 weird party on Babylon 5. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like that's not entirely like unsupported by the by the canon. You look at Jakar, who's like... <laughs> DTF. Yeah. For he's sure. He's laying pipe all up and down the <laughs> Chronically station. Chronically DTF. Yeah. And you've got, I mean, obviously Londo is is doing his best. Well, and then, and, then, uh, and I, I love, speaking of Londo, there's also that moment at his, at his ascension party, or is it the party before that, where he like goes to like, you know, uh, everybody and says like and you are cute and you are cute yes. and you yes. are cute too yes. mr garibaldi yeah no <laughs> which is like okay you know yeah 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 no i wholeheartedly agree wow. uh that that would Centauri make the romans show... and win in rome <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yep that would improve that would improve the show great we have a <laughs> long-running bit uh about how much i hate franklin uh, and I feel like making uh, him... He is my least favorite character yeah. as well. Uh, he just bores me to tears most of the oh. time. So this would really be a big step up uh, if he would hook up to Garibaldi, who is my second Which... least favorite character. It, just, I wouldn't be bored by that. We could just partition off that. Which awful... would improve Garibaldi too. Yeah. You make... Yeah. Franklin has all these weird, sketchy encounters with like every female he has talking speaking lines with. I know. So you pair him mm. up with Garibaldi who's you know a fascist and maybe that makes garibaldi better and you have solved two problems at the same time i i mean it's a win-win all around i see they should just let us fix the reboot the show if anybody's going to reboot the show clearly it's going to it should be us i think it's the solution My favorite part about Franklin, though, is that whenever anybody calls him on how weird his life is, he just gives them this look like, and? Like, he has no no response to, like, everything that you do and that happens to you is deeply strange, dude. And he's like... Honestly, "Mm." Franklin is, like, really relatable for, like, a normal person living on that station. 
Yes. Because <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm pretty sure that I would just lose all of my professional ethics and just do weird <laughs> shit all the time yep. if I was working IT on, on Babylon 5. <laughs> but also, I'm guessing that the entire time he's not on camera, he's just treating STIs. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would burn anybody out. You'd have to do a lot of stims to, to keep up with the number of... <laughs> STIs and stabbings. Yeah. Yeah. The, there's a <laughs> line... It. There's the one Franklin moment I absolutely adore is they, they're all sitting around the uh, picnic table of conspiracy sometime in season two, and they all start talking about the shadows, and they're all having this serious moment, and then it pans over to Franklin, and he's like, I, I'm down, but like... What are the shadows? And you have this moment where you realize that like nobody's <laughs> no been talking to him. Franklin this whole time about this whole thing that's going on. And he's just sitting there like, you know. I mean, would you talk to Franklin? I mean, God, no. God, no. But I think it's a very good moment because here's this guy like he's just the like the fucking doctor who's just been, you know, doing his thing. And they're like, finally, like, oh, that's right. You're here. I just like that moment, both because it makes Franklin look silly and uh, it's funny. So, double win. Agreed. Speaking of the oh, shadows, um, I have the benefit of, of, you know, being 20 episodes behind these idiots. Um, <laughs> so, I, I'm listening to things that they very intelligently said, you know, two months ago. Uh, something that Bold. really st- <laughs> stuck oh. out to me. They, they, they discussed how much they liked the the name the shadows for you know this this nemesis antagonist uh, and i was wondering if you had any writer brain thoughts about that because you know they oh my writer brain is says uh fuck off jms now you took that word for the rest of us <laughs> it was so simple <laughs> and brilliant and now we all can't call our space enemies the shadows anymore thanks a lot dude <laughs> like, <laughs> No, it's yeah. great. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's like it's only the kind of thing you could do when science fiction television is sort of just getting on its feet for something serious. Uh, and I'm mad about it because uh, that's great. And I would love to be able to uh, like be like, uh, yeah, what I do at work today. Oh, I named my uh, my super arch space enemy the shadows and then add a glass of Chardonnay. Uh, <laughs> but I can't. I can't because JMS got there first. No, we've got to name stuff like proto molecule yeah. now. <laughs> I know it's so much harder. Again, the Nobel effect. So much harder to come up with something new. Yeah, and you can't yeah. really call them like anything remotely close to that because everything's going to sound like you're riffing off shadows. Yeah, mm-hmm. Reapers. Yeah, or Reapers. you can and just be shameless about it. I suppose. <laughs> I believe. I believe in that that recording. I coined uh, Zaha doomed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, there, there's so much good uh, naming and uh, very, I, I, I'm, um, my degree's in classics, so like I speak ancient Greek and Latin, I'm, I'm that kind of nerd. It's, it's not the kind that's fun at conventions, we don't have conventions, we don't do that, we're just very lonely people. Um, but but uh, so I really, one of the things that's important to me in science fiction is that I want aliens the names they have for themselves, their planets, all those things. I want them to sound like real language and not just like you barfed a lot of apostrophes onto a page and hoped an actor would make it right. Uh, and the the alien words are fantastic in Babylon 5 and they feel very uh, like they, they would arise from an organic language, even if that organic language was not an earth language. Uh, and I really, 
I really love that. And I think it's something that a lot of science fiction struggles to pull off. Yeah. It's funny too, because there's been such a glut of like, every show has a world, has like an official language now, but they, they definitely struggle to nail that, that balance between like sounding real and sounding coherent and alien at the same time. Uh, and then you have JMS, who I'm sure did not sit down and like build an actual language. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I'm sure he was just sort of barfing syllables, but he managed to hit that that sense of co- uh, coherency, which is great. Like what little vocabulary uh, he puts out for like the Minbari language uh, sounds very consistent. Same with yeah the Narn language. I like that we never get the only centauri language we ever get to my knowledge other than like a few words here and there is when veer and londo are singing opera at each other that makes me happy yeah 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 that that seems entirely appropriate to me well i can say that the only the only trick i ever managed to pull off as far as doing that uh very well and it's not a praise of myself to say that it was done well because in space opera, which I mentioned before is Eurovision in space, every alien planet, personal name, species name, they are all words in the languages of Eurovision participating countries. <laughs> uh, I love so, that. So, which is really fun when readers get to it because like, yeah, okay. Maybe somebody speaks Dutch. So they get one, but they don't twig to the fact that they all are because there's about 45 different languages that it's working with. But of course they sound like organic words because they are organic That's words. That's beautiful. Uh, and so other than that, I have no other ideas on how to do that. Well, <laughs> There are also naming shit is hard. There, there are also some some just words. So a lot of the alien words are just ones that sound good in the mouth, like like spoo mm. and flarn. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know, they're fun to say. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. JMS has a good sense of euphony with his writing. He really gets that. Not just words, but also like the the episode titles. He has a really good sense of what's going to sound. Yeah poetic or or almost musical mm-hmm. in, in this in that sense I, I think you especially pick up on that in some of these great monologues with jakar and uh delen you you get a sense for that he has a very good uh feel for the the musicality of language agreed yeah then you get him ripping off Lord of the Rings. Oh. <laughs> well, I don't actually rip Indeed. off Lord Zaha of the Rings. Doom. No, it was coincidental uh, that Zaha I mean, it, Doom. Can, it goes it goes way further yeah. than that. There's a lot of Lord of the Rings material, Rangers. Yeah. Oh, come oh, yeah. on now. He pretends uh, with your with your pretty little pin. I'll, I'll note that Jude has a Tolkien podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so we have a lot. We've we've got a lot of Jim uh, says he didn't do it, but. Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. so many parallels. And and Justin hasn't even gotten to the end of season three yet. Briefly riffing back on the topic of like rebooting the show, I feel like it would almost be impossible just because the the big three of actors were so foundational to the show. Yeah. We've got Mira Furlan, we've got Andres Katsoulis, and we've got Peter Jurassic. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, two out of the three have passed at this point. Yeah. No, I think the only way it would make sense would be to recast the whole thing and have cameos if you can't have cameos. Yeah. But I... Or like do a continuation or something. I find it so... 
the the thought of somebody else playing Jakar yeah. or or somebody else playing Delen is just feels so wrong in my head because I mean, but granted there have been other actors who have played Spock and I've accepted them, but I've never truly in my heart grown to love them. It's Spock is always Nimoy. But you know, then there's also there's Starbuck who was recast radically and and we all Yeah, that's a great counter came, example. Came came to yeah. feel the love. Um it can be very hard for an actor to take on a part like that because they want to put their own spin on it, but the fans are already like impress me. Uh yeah. you know, but I I think that there are there are ways to do it, but mm-hmm. man, I don't know. I don't know how you bridge just wanting to see this but with contemporary graphics. Yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> with uh like anybody who wanted to take this take a reboot on, including JMS, I would think, would want to change it to some extent. Yeah. That's the thing with reboots and and remakes. You I'm all for I know a lot of people trash and dump on remakes and reboots and doing a new book. Like like on the mentioned, I'm I'm a sort of amateur Tolkien scholar. I'm doing my master's in Tolkien studies and I'm have a podcast about it. And I'm a big nerd. So people are always like, oh, you must hate the movies and you must be super like not interested in the TV show. It's the complete opposite. I embrace that stuff because it is a new way of looking at the material. I have a, I had a, a professor that said, look at it like King Arthur. That was the analogy that he liked. He said, this is the way new generations interpret these classic stories through new yeah. new mediums and new ages new n- new material new ideas get worked back into the mat- the material and that's really how i look at the lord of the rings movies and how i will look at the new lord of the rings show and how i look at remakes and reboots and reinterpretations in general but I think it's also why do, redoing B5 would be hard because I don't think a, a, enough time, even though it was the 90s is like 30 years ago now, Jesus fuck. Um, <laughs> but even though it's a, a decent time ago, I don't think, you know, oh, well, now now we'll have like hashtag Jakar V. Londo and they've all got cell phones instead of links, but it's not <laughs> going to change what the story is. And right. A remake or something like that has to be telling the story in a new way. It has to reinterpret the material in a different way. And I don't think that there's any anything new to do with that story. Unless you had like a really bold, different way to do the story. In which case, it's like a different show. Just do your do a different show. Yeah. And that's where I have beef with some of what where I think I would have a problem with it, with just rebooting the show just to do it in a modern take, like. BSG yeah. was brilliant because it took an out, the the bones of a concept, of a TV show and did it in a whole fresh new way. And if someone wanted to do that with B5 and had a bold way to redo it, that'd be great. I would love to see that, but I don't I don't know that that is what we would get. I think way more people are going to need to be dead before that can happen, honestly. Yeah. Like uh yeah, I I don't wish that on anyone, but I just feel like there's still a lot of people who worked on that show alive who have very yeah. strong yep. connections to the material. 
I don't think Warner Brothers would try it while JMS is still alive. Because... I mean, that's what I mean, really. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. But I'd, yeah. On, on the other hand, I could I could definitely get into the idea of setting something in the future, like you know, bringing back, say, Claudia Christian and having the future adventures of Ivanova or something. Can I just like, get a show that, about Ivanova? Like, I don't know. Living, living her life, retired. <laughs> yeah, living her best just life, being mean to people. I'd watch that. I'd, I would give too. me Picard, but it's a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, except I don't. I didn't even really yeah. want Picard to have adventures. I just wanted Picard to be like grumpy in a vineyard with a dog. I didn't need him to go save the universe again. I, Doing like React videos. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. I would watch that. Yeah, yeah. I have beef with the call to adventure because honestly, people make such great characters. Like, I want the people. Like, don't get me wrong. Sometimes the adventure is, is fun too. But I would certainly have watched like 10 episodes of Picard, like FaceTiming with his old cast, with his old crew members. I mean, it's what half the episodes turned out to be. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, there's a better version of that. It's called Alone Together, and it's DS9 fanfic by Andrew <laughs> Robinson and Alexander Sadig. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which, which listeners, if you like DS9, just look up Alone Together. It's just Garishir fanfic that <laughs> the two of them just acted out together on Zoom. The best okay. thing in the pandemic. Beautiful. <laughs> um, Thanks, pandemic. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> like a continuation of B5 or like something like that is, I, mean, I don't know how the series ends. So are we going to touch the, the, the verboten subject of Crusade? I mean, are we going to actually cross no, that I mean, bridge? <laughs> this show doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> like that don't don't, just like don't take that away now. from justin let it let, let him discover that on his own <laughs> we've i think we've decided that we're not going to do but i think it does show you it does show you how easy it is to lose the magic yeah like it it, the, yeah. it, it all is holding together in this very precarious sort of spell and it is very yeah. easy to break that spell if you take away any of the elements of it you know yeah. Yeah, and it's one of those things that's like, I as much as like I, I think we want to prescribe, like, we'll say authorship to JMS, mm. like, like I, television is a collaborative art form, like that, like so much so, and you know you change any one thing and you yeah. know you can ruin the entire, you know you can ruin the chemistry yeah. of that. And I think I think that's one of the things that makes B five such a joy to watch too, is the chemistry that all the actors. At at least appear to have with one another. Yeah, it's in there in the category of shows in my mind where it's clear that people enjoyed that the people acting in this enjoyed acting in it. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a yeah. certain je ne sais quoi that that imparts on a show and makes it a lot more a lot more fun to watch than when you know that somebody's just like going through their lines. Well, and look, let's let's be honest. I think the reason we even talk about a reboot is not necessarily that we want a reboot. We just want it to be easier to get our friends to watch this show. Yeah. <laughs> and if the graphics were a little better, maybe it would be a little easier. But like, that's what we want. We just want to be able to talk about it on the same level that we talk about a lot of other big shows. And it, I think that it, it being remastered on HBO will help. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a little selfishly, I just want them to like get enough of a budget so they could so they can license a video game so I could just get Battlestar Galactica deadlock Babylon 5 ships. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think HBO having it actually has made uh has already had a big difference. Uh I see a lot more conversation about it 
mm. just around. Certainly, I've I've followed JMS on Twitter for a while now, and the uptick in conversation that he's having about Babylon Five in particular is significant. Mm. He spends a lot more time grousing about comic books and a lot more time saying, I have nothing to do with Babylon 5 getting re- re- released or the books <laughs> or anything. Um, but he, he does a lot more interacting about it now than he ever did, than, than he's done. So it's it's clearly people are being made aware of it, which is great. Um, this is a show that deserves absolutely all the recognition. This cast did something special and th- these people that worked on the show did something really fantastic. Uh, top to bottom, everybody involved made something special and it deserves that that recognition. We were talking about how the internet went out on the island uh, yesterday. And in preparation for this podcast, I had been watching through some episodes of B5, just like, uh, remember this, remember that, remember this. And so my husband went and got the DVDs out when the um, internet went out so that I could keep watching them in this morning. My son, who's two and a half, uh, grabbed one of the DVD sets and said, oh, big book. And I was like, you know what, kiddo? It is a big book. That's exactly what it is. Uh, and, and it is. It has that novel feeling. Yeah, absolutely. The one thing that I wish on the HBO, the season one didn't start with The Gathering because nobody Ooh, should watch that as their yeah. first episode. Yeah, that was a weird choice. Nope. And that's that's, I think... Actually, that's one of the things I think is that makes it hard to get people into the show is that a lot of science fiction nerds who would be watching the show are completionists. And as completionists, you start with episode one, which is the pilot. And you no, you should never, never, never do that. Never do that with B5. Never watch The Gathering first. There's a couple of guides as to like what the plot heavy episodes are. Uh, and like to just watch those in the first season. And yeah. on the on the one hand, uh, there's no shame in that. And I, I don't blame people for that at all. And I think if people come to love a show, they'll go back and watch the yeah. other ones. <laughs> on the other yeah. hand, no two of those guides are the same. Some of them don't even have <laughs> signs and portents on them, which is unacceptable completely. Yeah. Uh, what? So I know. Like, I'm sorry. Do you even I, go here? It's, it's, uh, a season, it's, a, it's an eponymous <laughs> episode. Exactly. So, uh, and, if, you know, somebody who's just looking for, you know, a little bit of guidance is not going to know which one of those is the right one. Yeah. So it, it can get dicey. But uh, I think that it is completely fair to use, as long as it includes signs and portents, uh, <laughs> one of those online guides to get through the first season. And, and if you if you like it, you can go back and get that feeling of seeing everything seated. Yeah. And, and, and all of that. Especially at that point, you know who everybody is and you can go back and yeah. kind of gloss over the bits of one-off plot that are lackluster and focus on focus on the bits of character. Because some of those some of those lackluster episodes have fantastic character bits. It's just that they're And payoffs. You know, they're yeah. in like TKO, which has probably the worst A plot in perhaps the entire series, maybe tied with Grey 17. But then it has this amazing B plot of, you know, Ivanova setting Shiva for her father. Um, and th- th- have these two things juxtaposed. Like, I'm sure TKO doesn't appear in any list of episodes you should watch from season one, but you'd be missing out on so much. That's been the real joy of doing this podcast. Uh, it's been a, at least a decade since I watched TKO for that exact reason. Because 
all I remembered about it was the god awful, you know, testosterone, you know, martial arts tournament plot, and getting to watch these episodes with like a critical eye, but also like a new appreciation. Yeah, it has been really rewarding to watch every episode, and except for that goddamn newscast one and um, <laughs> the stupid. And the stupid, like, I have a little egg episode. Um, I took a pass on that one for my own mental health. And it was really, it's been really rewarding. I've really enjoyed doing it. I was curious, Kat, what are, like, if you had to, like, pick, like, a handful of episodes that you think are, like, your favorite, whether those be, like, big plot episodes, character episodes, just like single standouts, do you like just off the top of your head? I don't need like this is your definitive. I mean, five, to be perfectly but... honest, I don't even necessarily think of it in terms of episodes because I did mm. binge it before we have that had that word, and I mm. never watched just you can you can't eat just one. Uh, I never mm. watched just one episode at a time, so I don't necessarily think about it in terms of episodes. But any of the ones with great titles like Falling Towards Apotheosis, I loved. Um, and the Rock cried out, "No higher." Yes. Oh my god, mm. that ending sequence is so good. It's just gold. Uh, and you know, people use that song all the time, but it really was used well in that episode. Yeah, like I, I, I mean, I've said sides importance a whole bunch. I, you know, I do like the sort of finale that isn't a finale where you kind of figure out everything that's been going on. I do like that. Um, and all of this kind of end game stuff with, uh, Londo and Jakar, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a bad person to ask about like, what's your favorite episode? Because I, I think of it in terms of arcs. I don't necessarily think of it in terms of episodes. Um, and it just has, and, and that's probably pretty unusual for Babylon 5, but it just has to do with the unusual way that I, I was able to watch it all, uh, for the first time. Yeah, that's that's also not far off from how I think of it, that at least for me, that there are a few like scenes that have crystallized in my mind. So like, you know, the the scene where Sinclair uh, has the, the line of the line of people in Parliament of Dreams or Delenn's star stuff speech mm. or the, the Shara Delenn moment in um, Confessions and Lamentations where, you know, where she says that... Uh, you know, I did not. I didn't know that similarity was required for for compassion or something. That's along such lines. a good line. God, that line yeah. slays me every time. I mean, topical. Yeah, right. There are so many scenes that just stand out for me and that have just stayed with me over decades at this point. Yeah, yeah. and of course, any episode where Zathras shows up is a favorite episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not a joke, just a fact. This might be the nicest any guest has been to Zathras, and I'm not, I'm not sure how I feel about this. Uh, do do you guys not like Zathras? Well, we have a we have a bit of we have a bit because Aaron's nickname is Zathras to be mean to Zathras. Oh, I see. Yeah. Well, I'll never be it mean is to Zathras. Zathras. Lot to Zathras, is, Zathras is my fuzzy boo. Cat, uh, <laughs> where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Cat Valenti. Uh, I am on Patreon at Cat Valenti as well. Uh, and you can find me on YouTube at Cat Valenti Live. Thank you so much for coming on. This was a great discussion, and uh, it was fun to have another super fan on the show. And uh, <laughs> it, it's always great to to get another perspective on this this show that we love. And uh, yeah, it was it was really uh, a pleasure. 
talking to you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was great for me as well. I loved it. Thank you so much for joining us here. I know that I have at least one friend who is super jealous of me, so I'm (laughs) taking this to my grave. Um. (laughs) This was wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. It was great. All right, listeners. We don't know when this is coming out. So until next time, be seeing you. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share alike no derivatives license.